The Visitors from Maida Vale by Patrick Lau Episode 2 The Red Suitcase The pleasant tree-lined road known as Maida Vale lies in northwest London, a fair drive from my home in Southfields, but in those early hours it didn't take long. The road is part of the A5 and at that time, before the introduction of bus and bike lanes, it had two lanes of traffic on either side. On the east side stood a number of pre-war, six-storey buildings set back from the road. They each had a walled courtyard at the front, a wide entrance for vehicles and side alleys for bins. During the day, Maidervale was roaring with traffic. At night, with no takeaways or corner shops, it felt deserted, quiet and decidedly spooky. About a hundred yards from the Chinese Embassy's technical department headquarters, I stopped my car close to the curb, facing south. Unlike the main embassy down at Portland Place, there's no sign of any demonstrations, police or Chinese security guards. It's about 4.40am. As agreed, I drive slowly towards the building. No sign of anything. I begin to feel that it's not a good idea to have a stationary car right outside the building, so I keep driving further down and do another double U-turn. This second time, I approach at a crawling pace. When I'm close, I suddenly see Lai Sok appear in the alley next to the building. He's strolling in the direction of my car, still keeping his distance from my vehicle, which is hugging the curb. I stop the car and foolishly start to wave. He hardly even glances at me, but does a U-turn himself, discreetly waving his right hand, indicating I should wait. He disappears back into the alley. I'm confused. Was that gesture asking me to stay, or did he mean something else? I keep the engine running for another minute or so, when suddenly his little tubby figure shuffles out of that dark alley with the biggest suitcase I've ever seen. It's covered with a dark red cloth jacket specially made for the case. He looks frantic as he locks the heavy case in short little steps towards the car. He practically wrenches the car door open and shoves the huge suitcase onto the back seat. Just when I'm revving up the engine, expecting him to open the passenger front door and get in, he walks away, making another rapid but discreet hand gesture, urging me to move off. Before he disappears into the dark, he briefly turns round towards my car and mouths the Cantonese for, Go! Now! My heart is pounding as I pull away. I drive fast south from Maida Vale with visions of being chased by grey vehicles. Why grey? That night was grey. The spy films appear grey. The mouse suit was grey. Just a minute, I think. What's in that red suitcase in the rear seat? Is this... Is his wife inside? I keep one hand on the steering wheel and knock on the suitcase saying, Hello, and then in Mandarin, Ni hao ma, 
which means how are you, with undertones of for God's sake. There is no response. I guess she's not inside. But at that very moment, the 5am news comes on the radio. This is the BBC World Service. It tells of a Chinese diplomat defecting in the UK. My hair stands on end and my foot goes down a little harder on the accelerator. Has Lysok been caught already? But he has not yet defected. The news has just spooked me. It was daylight when I reached home. I scanned the windows of my neighbours' homes looking for any signs of twitching curtains. What would they imagine if they spotted me heaving this giant suitcase into my terraced house at this early hour? After dragging the case up the stairs, I sat down on the bed in the guest bedroom just to gather my thoughts. I had the suitcase, but not the people who owned it. In my state of sleep deprivation and adrenaline-fueled confusion, I couldn't understand why Lysuk didn't just escape with his wife along with their suitcase. The next day, the Chinese government was reported to be demanding the embassies around the world should return all dissidents taking shelter in their buildings and declared all asylums to be illegal. They even threatened to forcibly repatriate any Chinese court harbouring in such premises. I remember Lai Suk saying in our first meeting that he knows ways of getting to Australia and began to wonder if he was waiting for the queue from whichever foreign agency that were going to help him. So perhaps I just had to wait, like he was doing, for the contacts to happen. It must be a rather delicate situation inside the building. If the person who cuts your hair can shop you, so can the telephone operations manager or the internal postman. So I and the red suitcase waited patiently. The next day I was busy at work, editing my latest television project in central London. I kept remotely checking my home answering machine to see if there had been any messages or even calls made without any messages being left. Another day later, I was at home when the phone rang. Zhang Ni hao? Spoken in a rush. We're coming to tea this afternoon. The voice rang off. I froze in utter panic with visions of the heavies from Beijing coming to seize Lai Sok at the Maid of building any minute now. I found my instinctive reaction was to rush out of the house and to run to the corner shop to buy supplies of pot noodles and frozen prawns, the classic comfort food of most Chinese. All the years of directing television dramas and mending bad scripts had clearly left their mark. I imagine the situation would be similar to hiding escapees in a thriller where the first thing you need is water and provisions. The Brits may give tea and sympathy. We Chinese give tea and noodles. For the next couple of hours on that bright sunny afternoon, I sat in my conservatory kitchen with the patio doors wide open. The phone rang again. I picked it up 
and from the other end of the line, there was the unmistakable beep from a coin box phone. Zhang Long, you Even before he finished saying my name, <laughs> Lai Suk broke down in sobs. What's happening, Lai Suk? Tell me so that I can help you. <laughs> the sobs were brought under control, and through his gulps, he explained, "We are in a phone box near Regent's Park. The whole department went out on a day trip to Cambridge, and we had our small bags packed and ready." As I later discovered, these were Air China flight bags, small and discreet, so as not to arouse suspicion amongst their colleagues that day. So why are you still at the park? I was baffled. We just can't leave our country. We just cannot leave. Our hearts are aching. More sobs. I did not know how to respond properly to their plight. Are you sure they are not suspecting anything? Not if we get back to the building before they return. Then I hear mumblings from a woman's voice in Mandarin. Lai Sok has passed the phone to his wife, and Lai Sum is speaking to me for the first time in her broken English, which I can barely understand. She keeps on repeating something at speed, and I finally make out that she wants to thank me for all I have done for them, and she is very grateful. Then the conversation is interrupted by the beep of the coin box. There is some frantic feeding of coins, and Liza comes back on, now calmer but sounding so weighed down with sadness. Thank you. And I'm so sorry to put you through the trouble. I respond with some platitudes as I'm still completely taken by surprise that they are backing out of their planned defection. Then I hear her say, "We'll think of a way of getting the suitcase back." What? Of course, that biggest, reddest suitcase I've ever seen. And which may contain state secrets is now stranded in suburbia. I have to return it, but how? By royal mail, parcel, post. How? We will contact you. We can think of a way. Have you told your daughter and son-in-law about what you plan to do and what happened today? No, it's not safe to contact them from the embassy. But they have heard through trusted friends at home in Beijing that we are safe, for the moment. They may also be called back to Beijing from Tokyo. Then why don't you just get out now? We can't. We love our country. The coin box beeps again. There's mumbling from the other side. The line goes dead. I'm left with an image of two forlorn people in their regulation grey uniform, standing in the bright sunshine of Regent's Park, not wanting to go back to the very building they're supposed to be in charge of. I imagine that, like all of us, they just want to be at home with their family, shut away from the traumas of real life outside. But their apartment in Maidenhead is now a dangerous place, 
and their only daughter and son-in-law are also in possible peril in Tokyo. For some time after the call, I stood at the window in the guest room looking out at the suburban gardens below. Now in full bloom with all sorts of lush flowers and plants. In my own carefully attended plot, I saw the rows of unusually patterned marrows which I had trained up a six-foot trellis amongst the clematis. The vista looked so safe and ordinary to my eyes. I began to question my motives for my involvement with the would-be defectors. Was it an impulsive act of charity? A small gesture of defiance against one of the most brutal suppressions of freedom by a hypocritical and totalitarian regime? Maybe it was both. Perhaps streaked with a little vanity and self-importance? BBC World Service, the news. The radio news was still carrying reports of the complete denial by the Chinese government of any fatalities on the night of 4th of June 1989. But no one believed them. Just as 9-11 later became a universally recognised shorthand for the deadly terror attacks in the US, in 1989 every Chinese person around the world quickly became familiar with the numbers Lokse, which means 6-4, 4th of June. Rumours were spreading that the heroic young figures of the student movement, including Chai Ling and Wu Yekai had been smuggled out by Hong Kong's Yellowbird movement to France and then to the USA. I very much wanted to open the big red dress suitcase. If there were any state secrets in there, perhaps I would have the chance to do something anything to fight that regime, which, after all, held the fate of three generations of my own family. During the 1930s, members of my family fled China and settled in Hong Kong. My grandfather was almost the last to follow with his fourth wife and three small children. This once powerful patriarch had to leave behind his land and his business to live in cramped lodgings and depend on the now adult children of his first wife. I was born in 1947, already a British subject, with a British passport with Hong Kong embossed in gold letters on its cover. But the many cousins and step-siblings that I'd never met were left in China. In the late 1950s, we heard stories of these cousins' starvation and then their unimaginable suffering during the Cultural Revolution. Some simply disappeared and never surfaced in the family correspondence again. Though I had hardly any connection with China, like a lot of Hong Kong citizens, I have always harboured negative feelings about the repressive regime there. We felt a kind of superiority because of our freedom and relative prosperity as British subjects. However, we had no right to vote and no rights of abode in the UK, as we would discover later when the takeover by China took place in 1997. 
similar to those two sad figures wandering around Regent's Park that day, feeling lost and alien. I've never completely shaken off that sense of not belonging. Even my name reflects my somewhat confused identity. Growing up in Hong Kong, I was known by my Chinese name Chak Lam, or Zhak Lam in Cantonese. But at the age of 11, our new class teacher, Miss Hooten, an English woman who looked like Doris Day, announced that our Chinese names were far too difficult for her and so we should go home and each choose an English name for ourselves. My older sister came up with a list of suggestions and I chose Patrick, knowing nothing of his Irish associations. When I came on my own to Britain in 1967 to study drama at the University of Hull, it was easier to just carry on using the name Patrick. To everybody's surprise, including mine, I stayed and made my life here in Britain. And when I met Lai Sook, I've been living in London for over 20 years. But it would take just one stranger to make a random cruel remark like slitty eyes or chink for the image of the gold embossed stamp of Hong Kong on my old British passport to flash like a red light in my head. The contact with Lysuk and Lysum stirred up all these mixed feelings. I understood their fear of losing the only identity they had ever known. The next day was Sunday, 18th of June. I was still pondering how to send the suitcase back through the Royal Mail when the phone rang. There was rapid beeping from the coin box and Lysuk was starting to speak even before the connection was completed. We're coming to tea. What? We're coming to tea now. He rang off abruptly. I found myself putting the kettle on in order to stay calm as I wondered whether this would be another false alarm. For the next hour after Lysuk's call, I waited. I was scared, but what of? I was unsure. I desperately wanted to ring my closest friend Charlie or my dear chums Brenda and Robin who lived one tube stop away with my little godson Toby. I longed for their advice and comfort in my strange predicament but I knew I should not tell a soul and I did not. The Visitors from Maida Vale by Patrick Lau was produced by Mukti Jain Campion and it's a CultureWise production. And you can discover in the next episode whether the Chinese diplomats go through with their defection this time.